welcome back to Heart of the Matter. I'm Dr. Michael Stevens from the University of New South Wales, and I'm joined as always by the indomitable Dr. Claire Hansen from Australian National University and the irreplaceable Dr. Breed Phillips from Edith Cowan University. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Nice to be here again. Likewise. Lovely, flattering introduction. Oh, I had to think of two words starting with I to get the nice alliteration going, and I think I chose well. Um, oh, so is that you, Michael, coming over to the dark side, to the humanities? We love it. <laughs> Maybe, but don't tell my engineering colleagues. Mm. Like, mm. superfluous adjectives, don't do it. <laughs> um, in today's episode, we're going to be exploring a very important book for our purposes, and one that you may already be familiar with, and that is Nikki Stamp's Can You Die of a Broken Heart? Uh, Dr. Stamp is a heart and lung surgeon and a fellow of the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons in Cardiothoracic Surgery. What's so interesting about her book is its intersection of popular and medical understandings of the heart. The book is highly accessible, it's written for a popular rather than academic audience, and it covers a wide range of topics related to heart health. Things like stress, to heart transplants and mechanical hearts, female hearts, food, exercise, depression, family history, and a lot more. So what stands out from reading the book is that Dr. Stamp is clearly really passionate about her subject matter. Um, the premise of the book is to share her fascination of the heart and in the hopes that readers will, in quotes, fall in love with their own hearts and take better care of them physically and emotionally. Yes, it is absolutely fabulous to see a female cardiothoracic surgeon. I mean, we always, always need um, important role models, especially for those young women coming through. So she does this admirably. And she's also an advocate for women's um, health disease, um, uh, heart health um, and disease. And according to her website, which we will link to after this, she's also undertaking a PhD in women's heart disease as well. There's a, a lot of hearts, health and disease happening there, but I got it out, people. <laughs> you always do. Well done. <laughs> um, and for me, this, um, it raises a, an important question well, for all of us really um, around the representation of hearts and, and gender. Working with you, Michael, and learning more about artificial hearts and their history, I was quite shocked when I discovered the, the gender bias in their design. So I was hoping to, to start off with um, with perhaps an elaboration, if you'd be if you'd be willing to give us that, Michael. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's something that we covered briefly in in our paper in two thousand twenty one. Uh, I'm still not used to saying that as a, as last year, but in our twenty twenty one medical humanities paper, um, it was kind of a footnote in that in that paper. Um, we kind of saw this gender bias in the early designs of LVADs and total artificial hearts, which aren't really designed for the female body. So there was a study of about one hundred and fifteen thoracic uh, CT scans from patients with various cardiac pathologies. Um, and they found that this artificial heart, the CARMAT total artificial heart, was found to fit comfortably in the chests of about 86% of male patients, but only 14% of female patients. So you've got this new artificial heart, and this is this paper's from 2014, but this artificial heart's now actually just gone for FDA approval. So it's getting close to market and actually going to be deployed and, and implanted into people but it can only fit in 14 percent of women so it's kind this of isn't a new design sorry an old design this is a new design this is a new artificial heart it so still, still doesn't fit women yeah so like the artificial heart technologies take from inception to actual putting it fda approval takes about 10 to 15 years right so it takes a very long time but still that was like 
early 2000s and, and people should have been quite aware of the fact that, you know, women get heart failure too. Women need artificial hearts too, right? But the fact that it only fits in 14% of women is shocking. Yeah, uh, that is absolutely shocking. And and this is something that Stamp covers in her book. Um, she devotes a whole chapter to the medical mysteries of a woman's heart. And um, she also raises an, a ver very important point in the introduction to her book. Um, she says, women's heart disease is actually quite different to heart disease that afflicts men. So she explains, and I'm quoting here, so I'm reading from over here, um, my notes over here. Women have very different symptoms such as tiredness or shortness of breath doing something that used to be easy blockages form differently in a woman's heart with its smaller blood vessels and the protection of estrogen so the disease and the symptoms are different in fact scientists and doctors are still trying to work out how different treatments affect women's hearts compared to men's so you know women's hearts are in so many ways different to the men's you know and, and she this is something that she elaborates on as well you know she looks at the size of the heart the difference in the um you know the construction of the heart muscle and the effects of pregnancy on the heart so because uh, pregnancy has a huge um you know biomechanical um you know ch change effects on the heart as well it's it's really fascinating, and and I, I think this point is is such a crucial one for not only clinicians but also uh, for patients. And reading this and kind of reflecting on what you've just said, Reed, it it makes me wonder uh, how many of us actually know that heart disease in women present differently. This is relatively new information for me. This is definitely not something that I think of as kind of common knowledge. Um, but I don't know. Maybe that's just me. Uh, when we think about um, cultural representations of, of heart disease, say the way um, heart attacks might be depicted in, in popular culture, television, film, whatever, uh, I think it would be fascinating to, to think about the representation of male versus female incidents and, and what kind of symptoms are typically depicted. Um, I think there'd be interesting comparisons to make between what medicine knows or doesn't yet know and, and women and, about women and heart disease and how literature, culture, media represents that. So. Um, also historically as well, how this gendered difference in heart disease has been understood or or misunderstood. Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, Stamps book covers it covers a wide range of wide territory, but as you can see today, we're really going to focus on her interest in women's heart health. So she begins her opening chapter with an acknowledgement of the complexity of, of heartbreak, right? She recognizes that that when you think about your heartbreak, it's not just emotional pain. Uh, your heart actually may feel hurt. So right away, there's this recognition of this, this interplay between physical and emotional. So she recognizes that the connection between the mind and physical health has been debated for a long time and that heartbreak is a very key example of this. She writes that heartbreak is one of the most powerful emotions that we feel. When your heart is shattered into a million pieces, you feel like you may just expire. But the question is, can you? Can you really die of a broken heart? Sabreed, what do you think? Can we actually die from a broken heart? Absolutely. Absolutely. And this is where we can introduce ourselves to the syndrome, broken heart syndrome, you know, or because um, 
you know, this was identified uh, quite recently in, in recent terms, um, medically speaking, and uh, called Takasubu cardiomyopathy or stress-induced cardiomyopathy. So this is actually something that Claire and I are working on at the moment, you know, in relation to depictions of um, broken hearts in Shakespeare and early modern drama. So uh, we will touch on Takasubo syndrome later in the podcast series. Um, so wait for that one. So just to give you a little recap here, what is Takasubo syndrome? So as I said, it was only described quite recently. Um, uh, it began to appear in the literature around the 1990s. And um, it was also uh, popularly known as broken heart syndrome, but um, you'll see it in uh, the um, academic journals as Takasubo syndrome or TTS. So it's um, a, a transient and often reversible um, type of acute coronary um, syndrome or cardiomyopathy. So um, I'll, I'll turn to my notes because broken heart syndrome is, as Stamp explains, and I'm quoting her here again, similar to a heart attack. The body's emotions cause the release of a huge amounts of hormones that lead the coronary arteries to spasm and squeeze down, limiting vital blood supply to the precious heart muscle cells. And when heart um, cell muscle cells are damaged, they don't pump well. Um, so the uh, syndrome uh, was named after the Japanese um, fishing uh, pots. So when you look at it um, on a scan, you'll see this um, apical ballooning in the left ventricle. So it's it's quite a distinct shape. And the uh, this shape in the acute phase of the syndrome is very si similar to the Japanese fishing pot. So that's what it's been called. And they use these pots to catch um, octopi, octopuses, octopedes. Anyway, that's another podcast in itself, isn't it? So, um, yeah, and then the, it has this ballooning out and this narrow neck as well. So that's where it's got its name. It's a very random kind of origin story for that, but but all right. Um, and in terms of the causes of, of broken heart syndrome or, or Takasubo syndrome, um, the causes are emotions, so emotional stresses, um, that have been cited in literature on, on this syndrome include things like anger, uh, response to an accident, uh, response to, to death or illness or injury of a family member, a friend, a pet, um, an emotional response to a natural event like an earthquake or financial loss, uh, legal problems, moving, um, public speaking, um, the feeling of panic, um, an emotional response to receiving bad news, having, a, uh, having an argument, or even uh, a surprise party. So it's it's events designed, uh, well, not designed, but events that give us uh, very strong or perhaps unexpected emotional responses. Um, most often the stressful event um, triggers are negative, um, but there are a minority of incidents. So surprise party, for example, which would be classified as positive events. Um, some studies in, in um, the research that, that Breed and I have done have noted um, that in older sufferers, uh, there is more often no triggering event, whereas uh, younger, say, middle-aged patients are uh, more often presented with an emotional trigger. Um, and there's also uh, the prevalence of, of psychiatric disorders as well, uh, in, uh, which is higher in, in younger patients. It's fascinating, fascinating. That, that this 
idea that that a severe emotional response can actually cause a physical heart attack you know it's it's absolutely fascinating it's something that that like i certainly wasn't aware of when we first started looking into this and and i think a lot of people would be quite surprised to hear about this um the other thing that standpoint stamp nikki stamp points out is that there's a gendered element to to Sakatsubo syndrome and in fact she says that women are much more likely to be affected by broken heart syndrome now she claims that up to 90 percent of patients with this syndrome are female so why is this the case? And as, as she points out, it is not as simple as stereotyping women as being more emotional and thus more likely to experience this syndrome. It's not as simple as stereotyping like that. So she points to a range of cellular processes, body signals and hormones, and the way that the body handles fatty acids or glucose, and also the importance of estrogen. And as Stamp says, estrogen protect, protects the heart so that when it starts to decline in menopause, the heart may be more vulnerable. Yes, so her book really puts front and centre a topic that's uh, quite under-discussed, and that is um, women's heart health. So she writes that the heart disease is the leading cause of death in women. Um, this is one of the biggest untold stories of women's health, under-acknowledged by women and healthcare professionals alike. Now, this is actually mind-blowing. I mean, when I thought about, um, you, you know, morbidity in women, I would think maybe things, you know, to me are more obvious, like, you know, breast cancer, those kind of conditions. So this was actually mind-blowing for me. Mm. Um, you know, anyone else think that this would be happening? Surprise no. me. Very no, much surprise yeah, me. completely Absolutely. taken aback by that. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, what this is then is a hugely important public health message you know that, and I think this is where the health humanities can usefully come into play so we can interrogate things like gender issues around our knowledge and our communication of heart health information mm. and you know get to the root of why we think the way we think and why we find it so hard to shift that thinking as well so Stamp reminds us that um Quoting again, women's hearts are structurally different to men's and they experience heart attacks um, differently. Uh, and this is really important, you know, we sort of mentioned that briefly earlier, but most of the research that has been done on heart health and heart disease has been done by men on men. Mm -hmm. And that's, again, another mind-blowing moment, really, isn't it? When you think of 50% of the population, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Yeah, it's a very frustrating state of affairs, really. And, and um, as you say, Bree, the, the question that, really, that intrigues me here is, is how, as you say, a health humanities perspective might be able to contribute to this. Uh, there seems to me um, that there would be expertise in gender theory, gender studies that, that could be usefully brought to bear on, on this topic. And, and perhaps perhaps that's already work that's being done. I, I don't know. Um, but in her discussion of women's heart health, Stamp um, quickly turns to, to cultural portrayals. Um, she, she writes, and I'm, I'm also quoting, um, our society has traditionally portrayed a woman's heart in books, films and fairy tales as something fragile and delicate, a prize to be won or broken by someone who doesn't reciprocate her love. So implicitly here, Stamp is um, briefly, but, but nonetheless, she's still doing some health humanities work here, I think. Um, and that's something that could be much further extended. 
I mean, how do we in literature, in film, television, pop culture, in media, how do we represent men's and women's hearts and heart health? I think it would be really useful to, to look at this through the lens of something like, for example, um, Judith Butler's gender performativity, the theory of gender performativity. Um, our expectations of how people perform their gender roles has health implications um, in many ways, but for, for one way it does is, is how we think about male and female identified bodies and the hearts within them. Mm. Or, in, or in some cases, it's how we actually don't think about it. You know, so Stamps book tells us that until the late 90s, heart disease wasn't seen as something that generally affected women. So just imagine that, like up until the late 90s, they all just thought it was a man's problem that affected men. Like that's kind of how I've interpreted that statement. And so that's so recent. That's not a long time ago at all. Mm. Um, and to pick up on your mention of performance, Claire, it's also depicted in a lot of ways inaccurately. So, I mean, cast your mind back to last time you saw on TV or a movie, someone having a heart attack, right? There's usually clutching of the arm or the chest and like a stagger and a collapse on the floor. And, um, you know, maybe they're dramatically reaching for their phone or something like that. They can't quite get there um but uh as nikki stamp writes in a book it's not usually how these things go um you're more likely to feel a crushing chest pain and you might feel sick and vomit however in women though that that feeling is is a lot less common so only about 50 percent of women who have a heart attack actually report those symptoms that we might associate with a heart attack um women's symptoms are a lot a lot trickier to understand or to kind of or identify. Um, they might include things like jaw pain, belly or back pain, fatigue or shortness of breath. So these symptoms aren't really something that you and I would immediately associate with a heart attack based on our knowledge of heart attacks in pop culture, right? So it's very, it would be very strange having, you know, those symptoms and, and your brain wouldn't click immediately that was a heart attack. Um, the other thing is that these symptoms aren't really dramatic or exciting. You know, uh, Stamp quips in her book, Hollywood, Hollywood will be bored out of its mind with what a real heart attack looks like. Which <laughs> um, is kind of, it's kind of reality, you know? Um, but just the fact that she keeps coming back to this popular dramatic representations really shows how influential um, Hollywood and TV is about representing what a heart attack looks like. Yeah, I, I, I fully agree. And I think this is really somewhere where we can actually get a bit of traction um, in, when in disseminating this um, heart health message. You know, I think a project um, like uh, based in, in health humanities can meet that the middle ground between those medical concerns and between those representations in the popular discourses. And, um, you know, we could use this um, uh, sort of niche um, liminal space to actually unpack those gendered concerns around women's heart health. Mm. Um, I, like the fact that we have that stock image, you know, is, is something that needs to be dispelled. So, you know, while you were speaking there, I started thinking about where do we see representations of um you know male or female heart disease in literature drama film or or so on you know so stamp did mention that in the 2003 i think it was rom-com something something's got to give who is that um diane keaton and jack nicholson yes jack nicholson's character has a heart attack so 
you know, that's that's one that would stick in the mind. But then I was trying to think of uh, while you were speaking, although I was fascinated with what you were saying as well, but I was also thinking <laughs> about where we could come up with a woman's example of heart attack in a movie or a TV show. So um, thinking on the fly, I didn't come up with much. Yeah, I can't really think of any examples of women um, having heart attacks in, in TV shows or, or on, on film. I can think of a couple, I mean, I can't think of that many, but I can think of a couple of examples of, of male characters. Um, so Supernatural show I enjoy, that, that guilty pleasure, <laughs> not going to lie. <laughs> Some, yeah, visually pleasing show. Um, um, so in one of those, in one of those episodes, um, one of the male leads has a heart attack. Actually, I, I feel like he has ongoing heart issues. Um, is that Sam or Dean? That's Dean. <laughs> he has a heart attack and almost dies. Oh yeah, he does too. That's right. Yeah, That's right. In, a, in quite an early. Still movie. here and not a supernatural <laughs> viewer. Anyway, the point is. You have a very you have a young uh, young male character who is um, you know otherwise very very healthy and and very much that sort of conventional American masculinity on show here and he has a he has a heart attack so I, I'm, I'm sure um, in in other episodes of that show there are various supernaturally caused um, heart attacks that, that affect um, various kind of side side yeah. characters but he's he's the one that I remember in particular. Was a ghost-induced Takatsubo syndrome, perhaps? Exactly. Maybe. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> That's true. Um, there's some other examples uh, that come to mind from another supernatural theme show, Buffy. Um, Buffy's love interest in season five, Riley. He was at risk of a heart attack, I think, from a drug-induced um, situation, performance-enhancing drug-induced situation. Like some. Uh, secret military thing drugging him. That, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. He was on some sort of yeah secret military drugs to make him yeah. like a super soldier. Um, yeah, if you haven't, if right. you haven't watched that far in that show yet, we've just spoiled it. But it is over twenty years old, so I mean, Oops. if you haven't watched it by now, shame on you. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, there's also there was a there was a bit of digging into this. There's a bit part character or a side character. There's a psychic character called Cassie in season seven who died from a heart attack. Um, this was quite unusual. It's a young female character dying of congenital heart failure. Yeah, that is quite interesting. I do, uh, And apart from that young female character, I think the sort of the earth shattering moments, the glamorous moments, the heroic moments are all about men. And mm -hmm. one that springs to mind for me is um, James Bond. Don't, no comments, no judgment. <laughs> James Bond. I think it's Casino Royale where he's given some drugs that affect his heart and he goes into a life-threatening rhythm oh, yeah. and he defibrillates himself because he's just that amazing. That's mm. right. Uh, I forgot about this. So, I mean, was it in his car he did that? I, I'm yeah, just trying to remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I know. And, and uh, like, I just admire him so much for being able to do that, really, you know, because, you That's know, why not, you admire not, him. Yeah. that every, every <laughs> not every man or woman could do that. So it's quite glamorous. You know, James mm. Bond is quite glamorous doing his own defibrillation. Mm. That's anyway, impressive. Yeah. it is impressive, <laughs> impressively something. And also classically 
uh, masculine character as well. Yes, and, yeah. you know, he's grunting, he's got the left arm pain. And then I was just thinking in contrast, there is another female character that has come to mind um, who was experiencing a heart attack. Now, this is quite interesting because it was Dr. Miranda Bailey in Grey's Anatomy. Yeah. So we have here a woman who's set up to be medically astute she knows her stuff right she self-identifies her symptoms but one of her colleagues doesn't take her seriously so you know this is how hard it is for women to think about how they are going to be how they're going to feel themselves how they're going to recognize their own symptoms and how they're going to find those symptoms um acceptable to um, a particular um, medicals that they might go and see. So mm. with her, she they didn't actually even believe she was having a heart attack. So, I mean, I think this is really pivotal in what we're talking about today, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Good, good fine, Breed. I think that, that episode you. sounds worthy of a podcast in itself. Um, maybe what we should actually have done is have a heart of the matter podcast, which was really just a Grey's anatomy. To be honest, I would, I would accept that over the supernatural one. Thanks. <laughs> but, you know. oh. I don't I know. Think... I don't even know where Grey's is still going. All right, Grey's is long stopped, I think. But oh. there's, a, there's, there's, there's a rich vein to tap in the Grey's mm. Anatomy cardiovascular areas. I know there's a whole VAD storyline in yeah. there as well. So, That's so right. maybe we might have instead of instead of an article, one episode, we might have to watch an episode and break it down and, uh, you know, bust or, some myths or, that might be there, or you know. I think what we could do is we could re-edit all of our podcasts and. <laughs> As we finish them and say, well, how was this dealt with in Grey's Anatomy for every single subject? Yeah, because it's probably covered at some point. Yeah. 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 Do you know, Reed? I thought for a second you were going to say reenact. I thought that's where you were going. <laughs> reenact Grey's Anatomy. I'll be James um, Bond. I will defib myself. Hey, <laughs> good money to see that. I've Breed. got the I've training. I've no got the training. Do it. Um, <laughs> I'm going to share a secret, which um, hopefully not many people have noticed, but I usually put up that little clip on Facebook, in on my Facebook page every time I pass my advanced life support training. <laughs> I know, just saying. Right. Well, we <laughs> we digress. We digress. <laughs> so, yeah, well, yeah, so we're not the only ones who've, who've kind of started to look into this. Uh, when I did a bit of digging online, um, I found a, quite a handy open access article um, entitled Heart in Art, Cardiovascular Diseases in Novels, Films and Paintings. Now that was published just in 2020, so relatively recently uh, in the journal Philosophy, Ethics and Humanities in Medicine. So there, there are other scholars sort of looking into um, cultural representations of cardiovascular disease. Um, and in 2019, Deborah Lupton, a professor of the Vitalities Lab um, at the Center for Social Research and Health and Social Policy Center at UNSW. So that's Michael's uh, stomping ground. Um, uh, Professor Lupton wrote a piece for the conversation about how TV shows uh, usually depict middle-aged white businessmen having heart attacks. And she cites Mad Men um, as an example. Mm -hmm. and, and she asks, and I quote, can you think of any women in news reports, magazines, literary fiction, television drama, or film who have been depicted having a heart attack or with any other symptoms of heart disease. 
So I think that we've kind of preempted that question a bit uh, in this episode, and and we've usefully found found a few, um, but possibly um, they are the exceptions um, to the rule. And as Lupton points out, even though we're just talking about entertainment, um, the lack of representation has serious consequences. We look at the way heart disease is modelled on television at the movies, and that affects our expectations and, and how we monitor our own bodies and and you know our loved ones. You're absolutely right, Claire. And and fortunately, this kind of it's all starting to be recognised. So the Heart Foundation provides now some special information on women and heart disease. And we'll pop a link to that in the show notes with all the other links to all the other papers we've discussed today. Um, and as Nikki Stamp points out in the book, she points to campaigns such as Go Red for Women and Making the Invisible Visible, which are raising awareness of heart disease for women. But really, there's there's such an exciting potential here, uh, which you both talk, highlighted already, for in, interventions in the health humanities and perhaps for creative arts as well. Absolutely. And I think this is something that we will keep coming back to in the here at heart of the matter. Um, unfortunately, we are out of time today. So uh, we should just thank you for joining us. And we look very much forward to your company the next time. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. See you next time. Bye.